I'd like to read, as we go to prayer, a couple of verses having to do with David from the 29th chapter of 1 Chronicles, uh, reading at verse 10. So David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything is in the heavens, everything that is in the heavens and in the earth. Yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you do exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. And in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. Father, we would echo David's great prayer, because to you belongs all power and glory and majesty, and from you the strength that we need comes. Father, we acknowledge that we depend upon you, not only for strength to live each day, but for very, the very life itself that you grant to each one of us. And Lord, we realize we live in a world that does not acknowledge that you are the source of life and often will brag about the fact that each one is strong in himself or herself. But Lord, you have given us the truth and the truth has set us free to believe as we ought. Lord, bless us today in our study of, of this word of yours as it uh, relates again to this man David and, and to Saul, the man that he will one day replace as king over Israel. We're grateful that you've given us these intimate details for our instruction. Pray that we will grow through the teaching that your spirit brings to each of our hearts. Bless each one here today and, and the word as it is proclaimed in Jesus' great name. Amen. Amen. If you'll turn to the 22nd chapter of 1 Samuel, I like to read beginning at verse 11. Then the king sent someone to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's household, the priests who were in Nob, all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Listen now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here am I, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you and the son of Jesse conspired against me, in that you have given him bread and a sword and inquired of God for him, that he should rise up against me by lying in ambush as it is this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who among all your servants is as faithful as David, even the king's son-in-law, who is captain over your guard and is honored in your house? Did I just begin to inquire of God for him today? Far be it from me. Do not let the king impute anything to his servant or to any of the household of my father, for your servant knows nothing at all about this whole affair. But the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's household. And the king said to the guards who were attending him, Turn around and put the priests of the Lord to death, because their hand also is with David, and because they knew that he was fleeing and did not reveal it to me. But the servants of the king were not willing to put forth their hands to attack the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn around and attack the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned around and attacked the priests, and he killed that day eighty-five men who wore the linen ephod. And he struck Nob, the city of the priests, with the edge of the sword, both men, women, children, infants, also oxen, donkeys, sheep, he struck with the edge of the sword. But one son of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. 
And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Then David said to Abiathar, I knew that on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have brought about the death of every person in your father's household. Stay with me, do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life, and you are safe with me. First part of this chapter, we read that Saul had called a gathering of his counselors, his advisors. He brought them all together there. The scripture says, under the tamarisk tree outside of the city of Gibeah. Uh, apparently the place where he met because he had no palace in which to meet yet, and so this was the safest place. And he has heard, certainly, that hundreds of disaffected men were fleeing to David, that David had become a magnet for people who had problems and troubles, and they were coming to David. And Saul was determining in his mind that these men must be gathering with David for the purpose of, rebe of rebellion. What else would they, would, be would they be doing this? So he was, as you remember, we've talked about before, very paranoid about losing his throne. And so call, uh, Saul conjured up the idea that David was laying an ambush for him. Now, this is all in his own mind. There is nothing in Scripture to indicate that, that David had any plot at all against, David, uh, against Saul. In fact, we know from the remaining chapters of, the, of 1 Samuel that David did everything he could to not harm Saul. And yet, in Saul's mind, David was conspiring against him. So, Saul accused his counselors, his, his chief advisors, of not caring enough about him to inform him of this conspiracy. And, and, and by their silence, they were in fact a part of the conspiracy. He was implying. And his counselors, his advisors, were very distressed about this. And I, I, I believe they probably protested their innocence. We've had nothing to do with this. But there was a man in the midst, this Doag the Edomite. Remember, let me remind you again, uh, that Edom was a country way down here in the south. It's the country of the rose-red city of Petra. Those of you who saw the Indiana Jones film, uh, The Last Crusade, where he's off down in this, this wild country down there and he's chasing after the chalice. That's actually shot in the rose-red city of Petra. They, they photographed that portion there. So that's what it's like in there. It's pretty desolate and dry. But anyway, this is Edom down here. The Edomites were distant cousins of the Israelites, but they were pagan. They did not worship the God of Israel. They were total pagans. They worshiped other gods. And so here's Doeg, who is an Edomite, and he is a pagan, and yet he's in the service of Saul. He's called Saul's chief shepherd. And this Doeg, of course, was the only one who was at the meeting who was not an Israelite. In fact, he was probably the only one at the meeting who was not a Benjamite of the tribe that Saul belonged to. And so he suddenly uh, gives an answer. He says, oh, by the way, uh, King Saul, uh, the other day I saw David at Nob and uh, the priests there were helping him. Suddenly Saul sees an opportunity to vent the anger and the frustration that's been building up inside of him over the weeks and the months that had passed. And to send a message to the whole nation that anybody that helps David is toast, in effect. Saul now has proof that it's not all in his head, he thinks, but that there really is a conspiracy. The priests have helped David, and of course he builds something big out of something that didn't exist really at all. So in the passage we've read now this morning, we see that Saul sends a messenger to summon Ahimelech and all the priests at Nob. Now reminding you that, again, this is the, the central part of Israel here. Here's Jerusalem. I guess all of us know where Jerusalem is today. 
Jerusalem was not a part of Saul's kingdom. It still was possessed by pagan, non-Israelite people at that time. Gibeah was the capital here because that was Saul's home. And Nob was just a couple, three, about three miles over here, sort of a triangular shape here from Jerusalem, Gibeah. Out over here was Nob. And so it wasn't far from Gibeah. So he sent a messenger and he summoned all the priests to come from Nob to Gibeah to stand before the king. Now, if we go back, we won't go back, but in the previous chapter, in, in, the, first, in, in the 21st verse, we read that when David showed up at the tabernacle, Ahimelech, we're told, came to, to meet David trembling. He was trembling as he came out to meet David. Why was he trembling? Because he knew that there had been a falling out between Saul and David. And so seeing David arrive, he wasn't sure why David was there. And he knew that if he were to be any way implicated with David, this could make him look bad in the eyes of the king. And so his worst fears are now being realized. A summons has come from the king, not only for Ahimelech, but for all 85 of the priests who were serving at Nob to come before the king. Why all of them? Only Ahimelech, as far as we know, had actually uh, fraternized with David and helped David that day. There's no evidence that any of the other priests had anything to do with it. But Saul summons all of the priests to come before him at Gibeah. This was an ominous sign to Ahimelech. And I think as they walked from Nob to Gibeah, all of the priests had very heavy feet because they were, there, there was a great foreboding. What could this mean? They knew that Saul was no longer serving God. They knew that Saul was a man who was, who was not thinking on a level plane any longer and that he was very, very fearful. And so they were certainly themselves trembling as they went before Saul. There was no comfort in Saul's first words to Ahimelech because he didn't say, welcome Ahimelech, priest of the Lord God. He says, listen up, son of a high tub. That doesn't sound very encouraging. Ahimelech responds, I think, in a very, very deferential way when he says to him, here I am, my Lord. And there might have been a bit of a quaver in his voice hearing the king speak so harshly to him. Saul seemed to ignore Ahimelech's servile attitude and immediately launched his accusation. Saul indicted Ahimelech and all of the priests on the charge of conspiring against him, the king. How? By aiding David in plotting this, this, this rebellion or this ambush that Saul had conjured up in his mind, which didn't exist, but he was certain it did exist. And he presents evidence, which he, of course, acquired from Doeg. The evidence to support his accusation included true things that happened. Yes, Ahimelech had given David bread. Yes, Ahimelech had given David the sword of Goliath. And apparently, from what we can read in this passage, he had also sought the Lord on behalf of David. Well, you know, that's what priests are for in, in that day, to, to seek the Lord's uh, wisdom concerning someone if someone comes to ask the priest to to seek the Lord for him. And, and so that he has done. But none of the evidence, if you look at that evidence, none of the evidence actually supported the charge because the charge was totally a figment of Saul's tormented imagination. There was no plot. And yet in his mind, there was. Well, what happens here is that as we read in uh, verse 14 and on, 
Ahimelech made the same mistake that Saul's son Jonathan did, and that is he defended David before Saul. Saul, of course, didn't want to hear anything about how good David was. And so he reminded Saul that David was his most faithful advisor and courtier. David was his son-in-law. David was the captain of his royal bodyguard. I mean, uh, what more faithful man could you have than David? And then he rather indignantly and boldly stated that he had not sought the Lord on David's behalf in order to support a rebellion. He said, have I not sought the Lord on David's behalf on many occasions? And how was this any different from any of the other occasions? And then he said to Saul, do not slander me or any of us by accusing us of being implicated in a plot because we know nothing of such a plot. Well, it's quite obvious that Saul was unimpressed by Ahimelech's arguments. It was obvious that he had already rendered judgment before the trial even began. Talk about a kangaroo court. This was a kangaroo court. On the spot, he condemned not only Ahimelech, but all of the priests right out of hand. They were all condemned to die on charges of having supported a rebellion that didn't exist. He tries here because Ahimelech has, I, I think, probably well defended himself, at least in the ears of the other people around. You know, the guards and the courtiers, the advisors that are all certainly present at this time. So what Saul does here to try to make it look like he's still valid in his charge, he says in uh, verse 17 that the, he orders his men to kill the priests because their hand was also is with David because they knew that he was fleeing and did not reveal it to me. So if giving bread giving a sword, seeking the Lord, were, were not factors that contributed to revolt. They were still guilty of not immediately running to the king and say, hey, David was just here and he's, he fled that way, you know, kind of deal. And so he hoped that those around him would see that his charge and his, his sentence was justified. Didn't really work, though, because when he ordered his guards to execute the priests, they refused. They refused. Pretty bold thing to do in the face of a king who's as uh, off the beam as, um, as Saul was at that particular time. Why? Why did they refuse? Well, I think, first of all, out of, out of respect for God, these are the priests of the Lord. Uh, out of respect for the priests themselves, or maybe just because they were superstitious, whatever the reasons were. These men were not going to lay their hands on the priests of God, particularly since the charge was very suspicious and their guilt was very doubtful. So the king is very frustrated here. He can't even get his guards to do the job that he wants done. But he realizes that in the midst is Doeg, who's an Edomite, who's got no, you know, has no reverence for the priests of the Lord. And so he orders Doeg to carry out the sentence. And what is, is amazing about this passage is, is we have a single-handed holocaust. We have one man who slays 85 priests. You know, I don't really understand the, how that can happen. I mean, if I was one of 85 guys standing there and I see this one guy with a sword and he starts chopping it down, I think I'd have been out of there. <laughs> I'm gone, you know. I'm not standing around waiting for my turn to have my head cut off. But, but whatever it was, maybe the other men were willing to at least form a ring so the priest couldn't escape even though they wouldn't touch. We, we don't know. Somehow Doeg was able to slay 
all 85 priests. But he didn't stop there. Now, there's no in, in, in indication that the sentence extended to the family, but Doeg went then to Nob and slew everybody who lived in the town, the, all of the wives and the children, and all the animals that belonged to the priests. He slew the whole lot. He was a pagan. He worshipped other gods. He didn't worship Yahweh. He had no qualms about massacring the priests of Yahweh. In fact, I think he did it rather enjoyably because to, in his mind, this proved that his God was greater than God, than, than Yahweh. Because if his God weren't greater than Yahweh, Yahweh wouldn't let him kill all the priests. Because in your pagan mind, the priests, of course, are somebody who are very, very important. And of course, they were important in, in the worship of Israel. But that he should get away with this, obviously that proves that his God is stronger than the God of Israel, that he was able to even do it. But what this demonstrates is how depraved Saul was, how depraved he had become. What we have discovered, and I've already alluded to, is that David, throughout the rest of his career before he becomes king, constantly says, I will not lay my hand on the Lord's anointed. He would not even slay Saul, although Saul was seeking his life. And yet Saul doesn't even give a second thought to slaughtering the very priests of God, including the high priest. Just orders it done. No big deal. Tragically, the murder of 85 priests and their families, which, by the way, when you add it all up, we're looking at probably going on 500 people slain by this one man, apparently, that this, this murder was actually the next to last step in the fulfillment of a prophecy that had been made concerning the house of Eli. Let me back up to the second chapter of 1 Samuel and read a couple of verses there. You may remember, I think it was last summer we were there. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming when I will break your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. He's talking to Eli. The Lord is speaking to Eli. And you will see the distress of my dwelling in spite of all that I do good for Israel. And an old man will not be in your house forever. Yet I will not cut off every man of yours from my altar, that your eyes may fail from weeping and your soul grieve. And all the increase of your house will die in prime of life. Uh, you remember it was because of Eli's folly and the fact he had not raised his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, to truly serve the Lord. And as a result, they had done pagan things, evil things as priests before God. And, and so God rendered this judgment. But this is the next to last step in that, because here is the slaughter of most of Eli's descendants in one fell swoop here. Now, there are some who will survive because Abiathar, as we read in the passage, escaped and, uh, to David. And the last step in the, in the situation occurs during the time of Solomon, when Solomon is becoming king over Israel, the last priest descended from Eli chose to become Im implicated in a plot against Solomon on behalf of David's other son or one of his other sons by the name of Adonijah. So when David was dying, the priest sided with Adonijah to, so that he might become the king of Israel rather than Solomon. Well, Adonijah didn't win the throne. Solomon won the throne. 
So notice how Solomon deals with this whole thing. If you turn to 1 Kings chapter 2, then to Abiathar the priest, the king said, Go to Anathoth, to your own field, for you deserve to die. This is verse 26. But I will not put you to death at this time, because you carried the ark of the Lord God before my father David, and because you were afflicted in everything with which my father was afflicted. So Solomon dismissed Abiathar from being priest of the Lord in order to fulfill the word of the Lord which he had spoken concerning the house of Eli and Shiloh. Now that does not mean that Solomon went back and read that prophecy and decided I'm going to banish Abiathar. It simply means that this was done in accordance with God's foreknowledge that this would happen and therefore it was the fulfillment of the prophecy that God had made to Eli at Shiloh. Saul slaughtered the priests who had not actually participated in a plot against him. What did Solomon do? He banished a priest who had participated in a plot against him. Notice the difference. Solomon simply banished him. He was guilty. Saul slaughters innocent men. That's the huge difference between Saul and David, and Saul, and Solomon. Oh, Solomon will not be exactly a perfect king, but he still was a man who's like his father, whose heart was generally turned towards God. And Saul, of course, had turned totally against the Lord. By God's providence, one of the priests, the son of Ahimelech, mentioned in 1 Kings there, Abiathar, uh, does escape the Holocaust. Somehow he slips away and, and does escape. And where does he flee? to David, <laughs> the only place in the whole country where there might be safety for him. He flees to the very man who is really responsible for the death of the priests here. Obviously, he somehow knew where David's hideout was. It seems interesting how many people knew where David's hideout was, <laughs> and yet Saul couldn't find him. I think God had something to do with that, of course. When David heard out about what had happened, he was in remorse. We read that in the 22nd verse where we read that David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have brought about the death of every person in your father's household. I am responsible because I saw Doeg there that day. And, you know, what could he have done? Well, he could have used Goliath's sword <laughs> to get rid of Doeg. But he, he didn't do that. That would have been just flat-out murder. He didn't do such a thing. But he could have said, oh, uh, by the way, Abiathar, Tulu, I'll see you later, uh, and not done anything further. But what he had done was caused Ahimelech, and I said Abiathar, Ahimelech, who was the priest, he caused him, by actually telling him a lie, to give him bread, to give him Goliath's sword, and to seek the Lord for him. And by doing that, he implicated Ahimelech, at least in Saul's eyes, in what David was doing. And therefore, David admits, I have brought about the death of the priests because of what I did that day. Well, we're talking about almost 500 people. I mean, David has to feel really bad about that. And I think this was a great feeling of guilt that crept up on him, and that was what helped him. He would have done it anyway, but made him more, more anxious than ever to provide solace for Abiathar, this, this escaping priest. 
you may stay here. Please stay here and be under my protection and be my priest. And so he provided him security. He said, the man who's after you is also after me. So we have a common cause together. And I'm sure David was happy to have a priest in his midst because as we're going to discover, the priest brought with him the high priestly ephod and probably the breastplate, the implements that were worn in the actual worship of God by the high priest. Abiathar. That's an interesting name. Abiathar means the divine father is excellent. The holy father is excellent. He would serve David as priest for the remainder of his life. Even as we read in 1 Kings, Solomon let him go because Solomon said, you faithfully served my father through all those hard times as priest. Therefore, I will not put the sentence of death on you. I merely will banish you. But don't do anything again, he basically warned him. What will happen is by having Abiathar with him for the years that would follow, David would be constantly reminded of the folly of trying to bring about a good result by manipulation rather than by prayer and faith in God. David tried to work his own affairs by actually lying to the priest and as a result, this is the tragic uh, outcome. Whereas had he just simply committed himself by God in faith, this, this tragedy would have been avoided. This is a powerful lesson to us because you and I today uh, live in a day when um, faith is not much of, 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 of the world in which you live. And I mean true faith, faith in God. And as a result, we're always tempted to manipulate everything to make it come out right by our own strength rather than committing it to God because he says, commit your ways unto me and I will direct your paths. It's a promise and a, and a command. And so I think it speaks well to us today to remember what happened to David and the, the tragedy that came out of his trying to work out his way even by violating the word of God in so doing. Let's read on in uh, the 23rd chapter, beginning at the first verse. Then they told David, saying, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are plundering the threshing floors. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack the Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and deliver Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Keilah against the ranks of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord once more. And the Lord answered him and said, go, Arise and go to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. So David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines. And he led, and, and he led away their livestock and struck them with a great slaughter. Thus David delivered the inhabitants of Keilah. When does this happen? We don't know. You know, exactly how it, it's juxtaposed against the previous chapter. I, I think we're talking about a fairly short time here. Maybe a few weeks, at the most a few months, between the slaughter of the priests and this event. Because Abiathar plays a role in this and, and is recently joined to David's camp. So I, I think that it's, the time is compressed here. David and his men are hiding in the forest of Hereth. Now again, we don't know exactly where the forest of Hereth were. But here's the cave of Adullam where David was hiding before. And uh, here's Hebron. Somewhere between there is believed to have been where the forests of Hereth were, probably right, right in there. Now, Keilah is very close here. 
Kila was only about three miles from Adulam to the south. So it's right about in there. So we're talking about an event which is transpiring almost within hearing distance of David's hideout in the forest. So it's kind of like, you know, Robin Hood and his men are hiding in the forest here at Sherwood Forest and not too far away, uh, the Sheriff of Nottingham is doing his dastardly deed. It's kind of that concept, you know, that we, that we have here. He receives word that the Philistines are raiding the threshing floors of the city of Keilah. Now, we don't know a lot about Keilah today. In fact, they're not absolutely positive of its location, but pretty sure of its location. But what we do know is that threshing floors in those days were not only the place where the grain was threshed, but generally where it was stored also. So to attack the threshing floor is to attack the city's food supply. That's why this is such a serious matter for the town of Keilah. And so the people are, of course, in a dire situation. Obviously, there's not enough manpower inside the city of Keilah to ward off the Philistines. And Saul's up in, in his in his town of Gibeah, moaning and groaning over his uh, sad situation there, and obviously not rushing down to aid the people of Keilah. But David is a champion of justice and an enemy of the Philistines. And he immediately considers, what can I do to help the people of Keilah? This, this seems like the first thought in his mind. He hears this word, oh, our guys are being, I mean, our, uh, our town is being attacked over here. What can I do to help? This is his first thought. He has 400 men under his command. Well, that's not an insignificant number for that day. And so he probably immediately thought of the possibility of counterattack. However, he quickly reminded himself that his main purpose right now was to stay out of Saul's clutches. Now, he didn't want to do anything that was going to expose himself to Saul's attack. So what does he do? The smart thing that we all should do when we face a dilemma, go to the Lord. Anytime we think that that's uh, not necessarily profitable, read the book of James again. <laughs> you know, it, it tells us that if we lack wisdom, ask God, he will give it and he won't upbraid us for asking. He's glad that we ask. He wants us to ask. And so David goes before the Lord to seek his guidance, to discover whether he should actually help the people of Keilah or not. Is this of my own mind or is this of your mind, Lord? How did David do this? Now, you and I, if we want to seek the Lord, we simply, in, in the quietness of our heart, we, we send a prayer to God because Jesus is our high priest. We go directly to God through Jesus Christ. We're told to come boldly before the throne of grace through Jesus Christ, our high priest. Read Hebrews. But David lived in a different time. So how did he seek the Lord? I'm not saying you, that people in those days didn't just send prayers up to God. They did. But how do you get an answer? Well, I think David sought the answer through the Urim and the Thummim. You remember going all the way back to Genesis, uh, Exodus, the uh, implements that were made under God's direction that the high priests were to use to determine the will of God. How could he do that? Because Abiathar had fled to him, and Abiathar, thinking very quickly, grabbed all the high priestly stuff before he fled. So he brought the chief priest ephod as well as the breastplate and the Urim and Thummim, which were attached or a part of that, uh, those implements. And so Apiathar certainly used the Urim and the Thummim to determine God's will in this matter. The Lord responds to David's inquiry, instructing him to go and deliver the city of Keilah 
from the Philistines. But when David told his men, they weren't so enthusiastic about the whole thing. Uh, they said, we're afraid here. How much more will we be afraid out there, exposed to, to Saul's attack if we go out and attack an enemy, especially the Philistines? Who are we to attack the Philistines? They're, they're warriors and we're just a bunch of farmers who've come to you to escape the problems that we're having. They were afraid. They didn't have faith. So, what can we learn from this? That God uses all circumstances to teach us about Him. The, you, you could say, what does the Philistine attack on the city of Keilah have to do with David and his men hiding in the forest five miles away or three miles away or whatever it is? What could they possibly have to do with each other? Well, bad things usually come into our lives as a result of the efforts of the kingdom of darkness. This is true. But God uses them for good. God has a purpose to turn evil into good, to teach us to cast ourselves on him for deliverance in each and every situation. And so I think David, uh, God here is using this situation to teach David's 400 men faith instead of fear. Now, one of the most powerful lessons concerning this truth is back in the 50th chapter of Genesis. Let me go back there for a moment. These are wonderful words having to do with Joseph, and we know the story uh, <clears throat> certainly very well. So reading at verse uh, 15 of chapter 50 of Genesis, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph should bear a grudge against us and pay us back in full for all the wrong we did to him? You remember Joseph's brothers had sold him into slavery in Egypt to be, to be rid of him. They didn't ever want to see him again. They hated him because he was their father's favorite. You know, the father was foolish enough to play favorites and, and Joseph was the favorite and so the other brothers wanted to be rid of him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, remember now, Joseph at the time we're reading this is, is prime minister of all Egypt, second most powerful man in the land under the Pharaoh and they're living in Egypt. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father charged us before he died saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. So, and Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. Now notice what Joseph says. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And I believe that that is a principle that applies throughout all of Scripture and all of history. Satan means it for evil. People who... who um, are, are driven by their own passions and, and their own selfishness, mean it for evil against us. But God means it for good. God will bring good out of evil every time as we trust Him. And, and the attack on the city of Aquilah seems evil, and to have to go fight them seems evil. But God intended it for good. And one of the goods that will come out of this is that David's 400 men would learn to trust the God of David and to believe in Him and to follow David fearlessly. And so 
you, all of us know uh, Romans 1.17, which of course was the, uh, the great verse that turned the heart of Martin Luther, uh, where he quoted from Habakkuk saying, the righteous man shall live by faith. Live by faith in what? Well, if you read that passage, it says, by faith in the righteousness of God. Our faith is in the righteousness of God. God will act rightly in every situation. He will never act wrongly. And so our faith is in the righteousness of God that he will do what is right. He will do what is good for us. And such faith can only be developed through testing. We cannot know that God will do these things for us unless we've been put through the fire and to understand that he works. And that's why you and I, every once in a while, run into a problem along the, the pathways of life, right? Like every other day, maybe every day, I don't know. But all of this is to teach us faith, that God is there standing with us. David had that faith. How did he have that faith? Well, because he had had victory over Goliath and he had led the, the Israelite armies to victory over the Philistines time after time after time. So his faith was strong because he had been through the fire and proven that God would help him. David's men knew of these victories, but they had not participated in them. They had not stood out there toe-to-toe -to -toe with Goliath. They had not helped David rout the Philistines. Most of his men, I think, that had gathered to him weren't trained soldiers. They were like farmers and other people who, who came to David and just as they were. And, and, and they were you know, a bunch of country yokels, and, and they didn't know anything about military activities uh, beyond uh, you know, shooting birds with bows and arrows or whatever they did as kids. And, and so they were fearful and they were lacking in confidence, both in God and David and in their own ability. And so to make sure that he had heard the Lord correctly the first time, <clears throat> David asked the Lord for reaffirmation. And that is not a bad thing. You know, sometimes people will say, well, you, you just have to ask God and have faith and just hang on to that faith. I, you know, God knows what we are and he knows our weaknesses. And uh, it doesn't hurt to go back and say, God, are you sure? <laughs> I'm not so sure. Are you sure? Well, God not only re reiterated his command and said, yes, go to Keilah, but he stated emphatically that he would give the Philistines into David's hand. This gave David the confidence to order his men to go. We are going. You guys are fearful. Too bad. You're going with me. If you're with me, you're with me. We're going. And we're going to do the job because God is with us. And regardless of your doubts and fears, God will give us the victory. David's faith was vindicated because they not only defeated the Philistines, they slaughtered the Philistines. They delivered the city of Keilah from the siege. And not only that, they captured all the livestock that the Philistines had brought with them to feed the army. <laughs> In those days, there were no K rations. So you had to bring the sheep and the cattle along with you and hack off what was needed, you know, to feed the army. Well, you know, kill the animal, of course, and then use the animal to feed the army. And, and, and so there were probably hundreds of animals that were along with the army that were intended to feed the army, which they captured. And in those days, to capture a cow, to capture a sheep was a big deal because that was, those were the primary entities of value in, in that day. As a result of David's obedience, his men were strengthened in their faith, in God and in David, and their own confidence that they could fight the Philistines and win. It's going to make a big difference. Because as we read into the next passage, we discover David's army increases by 50% just as a result of this. I mean, it goes from 400 to 600 men, just whoop, just like that. 
The last number we heard was 400, and now after victory at Kila, he's now at 600 men. This, this happens many times in history. It reminds me of uh, with a man by the name of uh, Garibaldi led an attack on the island of Sicily back in 1860 when he was trying to unify Italy under one government, and he only had 1,000 guys. He attacked a whole kingdom with 1,000 guys. But with his first victory, people started thinking, whoa, this guy can win. And so his army began to grow and grow and grow. And by the time he invaded the uh, Italian mainland, his 1,000 men had become 5,000 men. And then as he marched north, he became 10,000 men. You know, and pretty soon he had an invincible army, and he defeated the kingdom. And as a result, all of Italy was united, and modern Italy came into existence. So I think that's what happened to David. He has a victory here, and others come to join him. There's no success like success, right? And so next week, we'll look at how this plays out, because Saul's going to come back in the picture here again.